Well, I know that you've begun an Old Testament study tracing the bedrock themes, particularly from Genesis and Exodus, to their fulfillment in Christ. And it struck me that there's a New Testament book that does that very same thing. The book of Hebrews traces the bedrock themes of Genesis and Exodus to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And I thought it might be profitable this morning as you transition from Genesis to Exodus to see what the author of Hebrews has to say about the biblical theme of faith. Let me begin by asking you to reflect on two questions this morning. I think these questions will help us to connect with the challenge that the church in Hebrews faces in verses 11, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. The first question is this, are you a people pleaser? Are you a people pleaser? Do you want to please others? Do you want to feel appreciated by them and to have their approval? It's natural that you would want such things. It would be pathological that you did not want such things. So the, the answer would probably be that we do both. So the heartbeat question is, which one are you consumed by? Are you consumed by pleasing God? Or are you consumed with pleasing the people around you? Is it your goal to please man whom you can see? Or is it your goal to please God whom you cannot see? It's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable when we consider what we're willing to do just to be liked. Without even realizing it, we'll, we will automatically hide things we believe, adjust what we say and what we do, change our schedules to please people at work or in school. As Christians, honestly, it's liberating, isn't it? To know that there is really only one person we need to please, and that's God. That's comforting. That's freeing. To renounce the idolatry of pleasing people, in Christ we no longer fear men. In Christ we live to please our Heavenly Father. Which sets up the second question for you this morning. How then can God's people live in such an ungodly society? In Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 29, Paul describes our friends and family who do not know Christ, he says they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We know this is true. Because this is who we were before God saved us from his just wrath upon our sins against him. So how is it possible for us to live Christian lives that please God when we know that is precisely what will displease our God-hating neighbors? That is the context in which these Hebrew Christians live. I'm going to call them that because they're the Christians in the book of Hebrews. I'm not creating a new denomination or a different church. I'm just saying the Hebrew Christians, I'm talking about the Christians in the church. The Hebrew church, I'm talking about the church in the book of Hebrews. That'll shorten things for me. That's their context. And you may feel increasingly that it's your context. 
So the question's relevant. How are we to live lives that please God when it is inconvenient for us, when it is difficult for us, when it is unpleasant for us, even when it costs us? Living to please people is like swimming with the current. It's easy, but it's not the Christian life. It's the wide gate. It's the broad way. Living the Christian life requires that we swim against the current of society by living lives that please God. It's the narrow gate, and we are the fewer people who are on it. The great thing about being consumed with pleasing God is that we don't have to guess what he wants. With people, you have to guess what they want. And even when they tell you what they want, it changes. People pleasers become slaves to moving targets. And there are ever increasingly more people that you just can't please. But God tells us what he wants. It's not hidden. And it doesn't change. God tells us what pleases him in Hebrews chapter 11. God's pleased by faith. Faith. So let's look at the situation of these Hebrew Christians, this Hebrew church. I say that because the author is writing to a predominantly uh, Jewish believing congregation. These were, these were Jews that believed in God in the Old Testament way, and now they have believed that Christ is the Messiah, and by faith are saved and are the church. So begin in Hebrews 10, 32. I just want to read this real quickly and give you the setting here. The author says to the church, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and not delay. By my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul is no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith preserve their souls. You see, the Hebrew Christians were persecuted for their very faith, and yet they endured it. They, they joyfully suffered the, suffered the plundering of their possessions. That's us, isn't it? Let me say two words. Tax increase. We do not like the plundering of our possessions. We do not like our stuff taken. We have laws against such things. They endured it joyfully. But, you know, that was in the former days. Now the persecution's been dragging on. And there seems to be no relief. And so they're wondering, are there options? Is there a way out? Could I, could we, let go of this faith in Jesus Christ and just go back to believing in God the way things were? And before you indict them too strongly, I mean, if you... Take a new job and it's horrible. You quit and you get another job. If you move to a neighborhood and you don't like it, you sell your house and you move to a neighborhood you like. They're just kind of doing what people do when they don't like something. 
And so the author writes to encourage them in the faith. He says, hold fast to this faith first. Jesus is coming. He won't delay. And you, you're the righteous ones who please God. And you're the ones who must live by faith. That's the, that's the reference back to Habakkuk chapter 2. My people walk by faith, not by sight. And so he gives this strong caution. Those who shrink back from the faith will live by sight and they will be destroyed. And so he's telling them to resolve. We're not them. We're not those who shrink back from the faith. We're those who by faith will persevere. Instead of pleasing men and receiving the reward of men, pleasing God and receiving the reward that comes from God. That's what he's doing here. Encouraging the church. And where does the author go then in Scripture to encourage them in the bedrock necessity of their faith? It goes back to Genesis and Exodus, which is exactly where you guys are going in the coming weeks. And so we're going to focus on him going back to Genesis, to look at faith in Genesis in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Let me read them for you. If you want to grab your sermon outline, you'll see this sermon theme. We come to God believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, for he is pleased to save from judgment those who are righteous by faith in Christ. This is the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith... It is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of God. The first thing the author does is not define, but describe faith, explaining how it works. Faith is an assurance that what we hope for as Christians will actually become a reality. Faith is a conviction that the promises of God, which are now unseen, will be seen. They will be fulfilled. So faith is a genuine reality placed within us by God. It's not mere wishing, and it's not irrational. It's real. Because it's real, it comes with its own baked-in assurance. To have faith is to have assurance that these things will take place, to have confidence and endurance and fastening, holding fast to that faith. And faith commends righteousness. What is this 
commendation. By faith, we're, we're commended to God. Other translations say that they're approved of by God, or their faith was credited to them as righteousness. This is gospel language that we're reading. Our faith has an object, right? You don't just have faith that hangs there like a cloud around you. You have faith that's placed in something or someone. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one. What is real, what is true, what we are sure of is that Jesus is the righteous Son of God who died a sin-atoning death on the cross and lived a life-giving resurrection from the grave. And by faith in Him, we are commended to God by His righteousness. What was the object of the faith of the people of old? Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman, promised of God in the aftermath of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Sometimes this gets out of our understanding. We forget that everyone who is saved from the just wrath of God upon their sin, Old Testament, New Testament, is saved by faith, 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 faith. Even in the Old Testament. Faith in Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's the gospel. There is no other salvation to be sought or to be found except by faith alone in Christ alone. If you were an amening congregation, you would amen at that point. (laughs) That's why the author is telling these Hebrew Christians who are being persecuted for the very faith that has saved them to hold fast to that faith in Christ. Because it is their faith that commends them to God as righteous in Christ. And this faith, it yields understanding. How does it yield understanding? Well, this is, this is the first in, the, in verse 3. Let me read it. By faith... It's the first of four by-faith statements. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And it's not like the others. It's the foundational statement that lodges our faith in the word of God, in the scriptures. He says it is by faith that we understand that the universe, which is unseen, came into existence by the word of God, which is unseen. The universe which is seen comes into existence by the word of God, which was unseen. So by faith we believe that God's word is an invisible power that produces real visible results like the entire universe around us. The ground we stand on, the air we breathe, the trees we look at, the sun we feel. We believe God will bring about all the promises in his spoken word because the universe stands as credible proof of the power of God's word to bring promises not seen yet into being. It's faith. It's faith. When you look at the creation around you, you are reminded God's word is powerful and true. So I believe it. That's what the author says. So, brothers and sisters, one, faith is real 
Two, faith in the scriptures is foundational to our understanding of everything around us. And three, faith is necessary to please God. And now the author takes us to a trustworthy word of God, the scriptures, to build up our faith with the stunning examples of three faithful men. Beginning in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see, it's by faith that Abel was commended to God as righteous. Let's take, him, let's take just a moment. I know you've been there recently, but let's look at the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'll read quickly. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're already kind of familiar with this over the last couple of sermons. Genesis 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard So Cain was very angry. His face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you. But you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Genesis doesn't mention Abel's faith, but it does show the acceptability of Abel's sacrifice. But in what way? Was meat a better sacrifice than grain? No. Each brother gave from what he had. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer. Was it the quality of their offering? Well, in a way, yes. Abel's offering is highlighted as being from among the firstborn and of the choice or the fatty parts of the meat. Cain's offerings just kind of left flat. Their offerings to God reflect the attitudes of their hearts to God. Look closely at the wording in verse 4. God looked favorably on Abel. Back in Hebrews, God looked favorably on Abel and his offering, but he had no regard for Cain and his offering. You see, God always knows our hearts. Our offerings reflect our hearts. Your offering of worship today reflects your heart towards God. Cain's offering may have been of the choicest grain, but God rejects it because it's offered in faithlessness. How does Cain react when God reacts that way? He's angry at God in his heart, and it showed on his face. You know when you're angry and you try to hide it. No, people see it right on your face. And how does God react to Cain's anger against him? The holy God. Isn't God gracious to him? Cain, why are you angry? Why are you so mad? If you would do what is right, won't your conscience be clean? If you would do what is right, won't you be able to look me in the eye? And this is amazing. You see, God just preached the gospel to Cain. 
God just spoke the gospel to Cain. As in every sinner, there's a battle in Cain's heart. And instead of running from sin, Cain is petting the beast. And God speaks to Cain. And he's speaking to sinful hearts now, pleading with them, stop giving your heart to sin. It will devour you. Give your heart to me by faith and I will accept you. If you would come to Jesus, he would in no wise cast you out. Because God is gracious. Cain rejected God. Cain rejected the gospel. He murdered his brother Abel. And sin devoured him. Cain believed that God exists. He heard his voice. God preached the gospel to him. Without faith, Cain knew that God punished unrighteousness. After all, he knew why his family was living east of Eden. But without faith, even Cain could not believe that God is a rewarder of those who would seek him. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. Abel, on the other hand, was approved by God as righteous. God stood up and testified that Abel's gift came from a heart of faith in God. Abel's offering was a visible, tangible expression of his faith and trust in the word of God. And the author wants us to see that in the face of persecution, we want faith like Abel's. Abel's heart spoke that by faith he belonged to God. Abel's heart spoke that his body and blood belonged to God. So that in his martyrdom he became a faithful sacrifice to God. So don't shrink back. Abel's faith was credited to him as righteousness, and he pleased God. And Abel points us to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who did not shrink back from doing his Father's will. Even becoming the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, for all who had placed their faith in him. Let's look at verse 5. Another great example. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. By faith, Enoch pleased God. Let's, let's take a look at that account. I, I don't think you even have to turn a page. It's in uh, Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Buckle in. It's a long account. We're going to read it all. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. Walking with God is a common way of describing the faithful life in Scripture. 
Genesis mentions twice that Enoch walked with God. That repetition is an emphasis. It's as if Enoch's life was one long, uninterrupted walk with God by faith in public, in private. And then, one day, Enoch was no longer sane. This is why Enoch is such a famous Bible character in only a couple of verses. The author of Hebrews refers five times in two sentences that Enoch did not experience death. I don't know if you noticed that. I mean, what an oddly structured sentence. By faith, Enoch was taken up so he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him up. Before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. I mean, you kind of get the idea. He walked with God for 365 years, and then God took him up to be with him. But before that, while he walked with God on earth, his walk by faith pleased God. This is instructive. This is instructive for us. Are we told of any of the things that Enoch said or did? No. We only know that he said or did them best he could by faith in God. Was he sinless? Of course not. It's sinners who need faith in God, and Enoch needed faith in God. What Scripture presents to us in the life of Enoch is one thing. Faith. Nothing but faith commended Enoch as righteous in the sight of God. And his righteous living pleased God. How instructive for us. Enoch and Abel lived by faith, and for their faith, righteousness was credited to them. This is not a righteousness of their own. They were sinners just like us, who lacked the righteousness of God, but by faith, the righteousness of God that is found in Jesus Christ was imputed to them, credited to them, because of their faith. I mean, there's, there's an important analogy here for the Hebrew Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. Whether Abel, who worshipped God by faith and died, he was killed for that very faith, yet he lives because his faith and his blood speak even today, or Enoch, who walked with God and did not die. All who place their faith in Jesus Christ, though they die, yet shall they live. Whatever persecution this life brings, take up your cross and follow Christ, and you too will escape death and be raised on the last day. That's what comes by faith. And Enoch is a forecast of Jesus' exaltation. Enoch walked with God and was taken up by God just as Jesus walked according to his Father's plan, accomplishing his Father's will, and ascended to the right hand of God, the Most High. That's what faith brings. What is it, particularly about faith, that pleases God? How does this whole thing work, anyway? Well, look at verse 6. Enoch pleased God, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
Why do we have to please God in the first place? Well, it's, it's verse 3 in Hebrews 11, and it's all of Genesis chapter 1. God created us and gave us life. God created us and gave us life. All people are God's creation. Therefore, all of humanity is responsible to please God. But as you discovered in your study of Genesis, Adam disobeyed God. So all of mankind have gone their own way and live lives displeasing to God. The only way sinners can live lives pleasing to God is to live by faith. And this faith entails two things, the author tells us. First, it involves believing that God exists. Not just any God, but the God who long ago and many times and in many ways made himself known and made his will known through the fathers and the prophets. And who in these last days has made himself known through his son Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's by faith we believe that he whom we have not seen exists. But that alone is not enough. James, James tells us that even the demons believe that God exists, but they don't please him. They're an open evil rebellion against him. They rejected the goodness of God and they rejected the love of God. They loved themselves and sought their own good. That's what Cain did. They had, James says, demon faith. Huh. Lots of people will tell you, yeah, I, uh, I believe in God. Very spiritual person. I believe in God. But that's all. They only have demon faith. So one must believe not only that God, the God of Scripture, exists, but also that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's... That's the second thing. Seeking God is common biblical expression, meaning trusting in God, relying upon God, depending upon God. In the Psalms, those who seek God are those who have placed their faith in Him already. They're, they're trusting entirely upon God. So what is the reward for those who seek God by faith? It is God Himself. Ultimately, it is God Himself. Those who seek God find God. Those who want God by faith will have God. It's actually very simple, isn't it? And those who love and obey God will dwell in His holy presence. That's what that seeking God thing is all about. I'm, I'm seeking God. I'm looking to get into His presence. This isn't, this isn't mechanical language as to how this works, it's relational language. This is all relational language as to how this works. Faith is necessary because God has determined that He will reconcile Himself, reconcile our broken relationship because of our sins against Him by faith. We were all by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgresses, transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up in him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. How did he do that? For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this faith is not a result of your own doing. It is rather a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. The faith that pleases God is the saving faith He gives us so that we will know Him who is unseen and with confidence place all of our love and trust and reliance and dependence upon Him because He's real. He exists. And He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. How can we know? That God loves us. Because while we were yet God haters, He sent His own Son to die for us. Romans 5, verse 8. Remember, faith is not mere feeling, faith is not mere wishing. Faith is reality grounded in the object of our faith the most grounded real thing that there is, our eternal God. By faith, we trust our good God who loves us. And by faith, we love Him. That's why God is pleased by faith. So, it is impossible to please God without faith. And without faith, you will not receive the internal pleasures that he has promised forever. The old Westminster Catechism defines the chief end of man, our chief end, in this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That sounds like relational stuff to me. That sounds like a, a father in heaven who loves me. That's what both Enoch and Abel did on earth, and it's what they're doing now. By faith, God commended them as righteous in his sight. Do you have that righteousness? I've got good news for you this morning. The God who is has provided the very righteousness that you need. You can find it in His Son, Jesus Christ. You can find it in the one who died for sinners on the cross, paying the penalty for our unrighteousness, who rose from the dead and is the promise of God, who was seen by his disciples and ascended into heaven. He's the very righteousness of God that you need, and you can have him today. You can have his righteousness today. And you know how now. By faith. And you already know how that works. Believe that he is. Believe that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And with humility, humility of heart, trust him. Trust him. Ask God to give you this faith that you want and turn from pleasing yourself and turn to pleasing him. Stop being a people pleaser and the short-term fickle rewards that it brings and be a God pleaser and receive eternal life in glory with him. There's no more work to do. There's no more getting ready that's required. So don't delay. All around the world, God is rewarding those who seek Him this morning. Do it. Love Him. 
So the answer to the first question of our morning is this. We please God by faith in Jesus Christ and you will find freedom from sin and the eternal love of God. Which brings us to our second question. How can we now, together, as God's people, live lives pleasing to God in a culture, in a society that is increasingly hostile to God? To what we believe, everything we think, the things we want to say and do that are for their good, but they're hostile to us. How can we find the strength to swim against the current of a sinful world? One more, one more by faith example in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, Noah is the encouragement for Christians facing opposition to not shrink back, but to continue in the faith. Let's look real quickly at the account of Noah back in uh, Genesis chapter 6. I'll begin in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And, Noah said to, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with, a, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it pit, inside and outside with pitch. Make it in these ways. Behold, I'll, I'll bring a flood waters upon the earth. I'm skipping down all flesh which has seen the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. And you shall come into the ark, and you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And so God, Noah did as God commanded. So let me just, let me kind of bottom line Noah here for us, since you've studied this just recently. Noah hears the warning of God, the warning of holy judgment that's coming. He responds in obedience by building this ark, I don't know, for 75, 100, 150 years or so. And in so doing, Noah condemns the world and becomes, at the same time, an heir of righteousness. This is where the author takes the church in Hebrews. He takes them to Noah to see the power of the gospel. To see the sovereign plan of God to bring salvation through judgment by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's the necessity of faith. By faith, Noah believed that God would bring about His judgment on the wicked by this yet unseen destruction. Noah was certain and confident in the substance of that reality. Judgment's coming. Those without faith did not believe in God or that he was a rewarder of those who have faith in him, were destroyed. God will judge the wicked. Isn't that interesting? People wouldn't believe Noah when he told them of a judgment to come by flood. You know, maybe in the hundredth year, 
Or the 150th year of him building the ark. Hey, Noah, still no waters. The same way that they tell you, silly Christian. It's been 2,000 years since the story of Jesus. Still no fire. Still no brimstone. God will judge the wicked more. God will save those who trust him and turn to him by faith. They will become heirs of his righteousness. Why is Noah such a great model of faith for us and these Christians, this church in the book of Hebrews? Because by faith, Noah believed the word of God. Because by faith, Noah did the gospel work that God called him to do. Because by faith, Noah lived a life of righteousness that stood in contrast to and provoked the unrighteousness of the world around him. And by faith, Noah became an heir, along with Abel and Enoch, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so will these Hebrew Christians... And so will you and I if we hold fast to the faith. What are we called to do by faith, church? We're to believe the word of God. By faith, we're to do the gospel work that he's called us to do. By faith, we're to live lives of righteousness best that we can. Putting to death sin, cultivating righteousness... And we will find that that life is in contrast to the unrighteousness around it and even provokes the anger of the evil around us. Because just by living that way, you stand as a testimony to the judgment to come. And by faith, we, together, the saints of God, will become the very righteousness of Christ. We will become holy and blameless before God. And we'll be with Him. I'm always sobered by the persecution suffered by the church in Hebrews. Remember we read it at the beginning. They were were publicly reproached and afflicted. Their property was plundered plundered by the public and they were locked up in public prisons. That means what they believed and what they said and did was grounds for legal action in their society. That's a society that has made faith difficult and made faith costly. But the consequences of shrinking back They're just unthinkable. They're unthinkable. And the reward for holding fast is Christ himself. Do you see that this is a faith that perseveres? Do you see with assurance and conviction why the church is here? 
We're here to live lives of faith which point to Christ. His just judgment on sin and His free gift of righteousness that comes by faith. Faith that trusts God and pleases Him. Faith by which we love God and by walking with Him even in the context of a God-hating, Christ-rejecting world. All points to salvation that comes in Christ. We're not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls by faith. We see our promised salvation, our promised righteousness by faith in the Scriptures. We see the one who has truly pleased God. The same one who Abel and Enoch and Noah way back in Genesis believed in and had faith in. By faith, we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see him now. In verse 3, Jesus is the powerful word of creation. In verse 4, Jesus is the better sacrifice whose blood still speaks and covers sin. In verse 5, Jesus who walked with God, perfect in righteousness, and was taken up by God and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty, even now interceding for us. In verse 6, Jesus is the one who pleased God on our behalf, and by faith in him we become heirs of his righteousness. And in verse 7, Jesus is the ark of our salvation. There is no safety to be found outside of faith in him. So brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. Let us live out by faith, walking in righteousness, and let's, let's be Christ's church and proclaim the good news of salvation as the day draws near. Let's walk by faith, not by sight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for love expressed in the sacrifice of a son died for our sins and rose to give us life. Lord, strengthen our faith, we pray, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.